The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're asking that you would come now in the power of your spirit so that we would have open eyes and awakened hearts to see your truth in your word. We don't want to go a Sunday without being increasingly transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus. So transform us by your word and help us to see your saving power and your power to build and advance your church to the very ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. During World War II, at the Normandy landings in France, which are often called D-Day or Operation Neptune, the Allied Allied forces brought troops by ship to the beaches of Normandy in order to establish what is called a beachhead. A beachhead is an area of land that's invaded and then established and secured so that it could become a base for further expansion into the interior. The goal would be a base into enemy territory. And D-Day was eventually depicted in the film Saving Private Ryan. It had many casualties and it was perhaps the largest seaborne invasion in history. Some call D-Day the most ambitious and consequential military campaign in human history, and it helped win World War II. In Acts 16 this morning, we see an ambitious and consequential spiritual campaign to establish a beachhead in Gentile territory, not through wartime killing, but through preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this beachhead would go on to be the Philippian church. And many of us are familiar with the Philippian church when we've read the book of Philippians. From this church, missionaries would be sent and supported, and Paul and his teammates would be built up, and it would serve as a base for expansion into Europe. But like D-Day, The mission is costly and daunting, and they're operating in uncharted territory. And yet Jesus Christ is the one sending them. So the the main point of our passage this morning in Acts 16 is this, that Jesus is establishing his church as a beachhead for gospel advance. Not just in these times, in Acts 16, he is doing that with the Philippian church, that they would be a beachhead into further Gentile territory into Europe and all the way to the ends of the earth. But God today is establishing the church as a beachhead for gospel advance all the way until the ends of the earth. And my aim this morning, very simply, is to just stir us up from our slumber to remind us that a spiritual war is raging constantly. And there are casualties left and right. People are perishing without Jesus. And we exist as the church to shine the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We're not mainly victims of our culture and of the world around us. We're on the offensive 
brothers and sisters, advancing Christ's gospel to the very ends of the earth. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. So let me just give us the context of Acts 16 real briefly. If you're joining us for the first time, we're we're preaching through the book of Acts and we're just taking uh, chapters or half a chapter at a time. So back in Acts 15, 36, it was Paul's intention to visit all of the various cities that they visited on their first missionary journey. And him and Barnabas split up. So it's him and Silas now. And Acts 15.36 all the way to 18.22 would be traditionally viewed as Paul's second missionary journey. And in Acts 15.41, it ended with that they were traveling, traveling to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what we have is a missionary team with a plan. We're going to go revisit all the various churches, and yet Jesus Christ redirects them to establish a beachhead in Philippi. So Acts 16 breaks down into four sections, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the fourth section. So verses 1 through 5, we see additional reinforcements when they recruit Timothy. In 6 through 10, we see a redirected strategy. In verses 11 through 15, we see increased support in the conversion of Lydia, and then we see the battle raging or battle ensues in 16 to 40. So look with me at verses 1 through 5. It opens with the recruitment of Timothy to join this missionary team. Now, what we learn about Timothy is that he had a believing Jewish mom and a Greek dad. And so from Paul's writings, we know that he was a co-sender of six of Paul's letters. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. And he describes Timothy in the book of Philippians this way. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So Paul is building this team and he's bringing on an additional teammate. Very likely during his first missionary journey, Timothy and his mom and grandmother all came to faith and now he recruits him to join. And the surprising issue in these first five verses is why does he circumcise Timothy in verse three? Paul argued, as we saw last week, against circumcision as being needed for salvation. And we know even from Galatians two that he absolutely refused to circumcise Titus. That would compromise the very heart of the gospel. We're saved by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. So is Paul changing his mind here? Well, no. The reason he circumcises Timothy is because Timothy is viewed as a Jew. His mom is is a Jew, but he wasn't circumcised. And this would have hampered the missionary outreach to Jews. Timothy, being uncircumcised, would have prevented him from going into the synagogue and ministering to Jews. And that was Paul's pattern. Every city he went to, he would go to the synagogue first, and then he would minister to the Gentiles, depending on how he was received. And so this is kind of a missionary instinct here. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation, period, full stop. But Timothy's circumcision was helpful and wise so that he could minister alongside Paul to Jewish communities. Now, it's helpful just to pause here for a moment. And this is We might think, well, we don't deal with that issue anymore. We don't talk about circumcision and whether that's needed in missionary outreach. And yet, contextualization of the gospel is one of the biggest issues in missiology today. 
whether it's the insider movement or church planting movements or uh, discipling making movements. Like, I don't have time to kind of dis- explain all of them, but there's all sorts of movements taking place around the world in missiology and, and, and they're constantly wrestling with, can we contextualize this aspect? Can, can, can we do this or, or do that? And yet this, our series in Acts has reminded us we, we see sort of the broad sweeping flow of the book of Acts that a biblical church is the baptized, the gathering of baptized believers that hear the word of God, that engage in worship and prayer and fellowship, and they observe baptism and communion and church discipline, and they have leaders such as the elders. And so it's helpful for us to be reminded that any methodology that would minimize allegiance to Christ or participation in his church or the study of the scriptures or the centrality of Jesus should absolutely be rejected. We don't want our missionaries to export things like the prosperity gospel or a syncretistic gospel. And so the book of Acts continues to remind us that we need to keep Christ central, not only in our church life, but as we minister to different cultures and cross cultures and minister abroad. So Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, but Jews can still practice circumcision for cultural reasons. It it can't be salvific. That's what we see in this passage. And I think what Luke is doing here is he's just highlighting a little nugget that's going to come back later in chapter 21. In Acts 21, 21, Paul is accused of telling the Jews that you can't circumcise your children, which would not be true. It's just you can't circumcise, demand circumcision of Gentiles for the sake of salvation. That would undermine the heart of the gospel. So Paul and Silas continue to travel, and and they're delivering the Jerusalem council's decision. So that leads us to verses 6 through 10. Here we get this redirected strategy. The most surprising part of verses 6 through 10 is the constant closed doors for ministry. They travel through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and then verse 6 says, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then again in verse 7, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And we're thinking, what? Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit allow these missionaries to move in and speak the word of God? Well, we, we don't really have an answer. What Luke is doing is he's directing our attention to the fact that Jesus Christ is redirecting the mission strategy into a different region. Right? What we see is this call, this vision to go to Macedonia. They begin to venture beyond these original cities visited in their first missionary journey. Now, one of the questions we're probably wondering is how did they know? What, was it a vision? Was it a prophecy? Was it uh, an internal sense? Was, what was it? And again, we don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus is guiding his church. Remember how we opened this entire series in Acts? We said it's traditionally known as the Acts of the Apostles, but we could rename it the Acts of Jesus Christ, of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus does not exit stage left, only never to be seen again, but that Jesus is at work directing his church. 
And here again, we see him directing his disciples for this missionary outreach. It could be that they just encountered closed doors. And Luke is just writing, kind of looking backwards and saying, oh, that's what God was doing. We don't know. I don't think we're supposed to take away from this that we should wait for visions or or dreams when we make life decisions. But rather, we continue to take steps forward, walk through open doors, and when doors close, recognize that God is at work in that. Paul gets a vision beckoning them to come to Macedonia. This would have been the northern region of Greece where there were various cities, Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, and Neapolis. And the vision makes it crystal clear. Jesus is the one that's in charge. He is the one that is directing this mission. Now, I just want to apply this for us real briefly. Whenever we face closed doors, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in your personal life, maybe it's in ministering to neighbors, we experience closed doors, trials, hardships, obstacles. One of the things we ought to remember is that the Lord Jesus Christ is at work. Jesus is at work. He's wise and he's good and he's working for our good and for the advance of the gospel and for his glory. And so sometimes God closes doors and prevents speaking and redirects our efforts. Proverbs 16, 9, many of you know this. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, this shouldn't make us quick to quit. Oh, closed door, I'm going to move on. Because we see later, Paul and and Silas, they encounter some hardship and they get thrown into prison. And that's all precisely according to God's providential plan. And yet we can be encouraged that even when we do encounter closed doors, whether we're trying to reach neighbors for Jesus or in our workplace or or other major things that we think, I I think God's calling me to this, and yet here's this closed door. That we can believe and trust that God is at work. God is working. And and I, I would say this, we can never go wrong. We can never go wrong when we face closed doors or trials or hardships to pray in this way. Pray that God would use that trial for your good, for gospel advance, and for his glory. Pray. In whatever closed doors you might encounter, for your good, for gospel advance, and for his glory. Now, before we move on to the next section, notice in verse 10 how Luke begins and introduces the first person plural. He says, immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So at this point, Luke likely joins this missionary team. So there's four of them now, and Luke kind of comes and goes throughout the rest of Acts at various points, and he's an eyewitness journey, eyewitness to this leg of the journey. So now we come to verses 11 to 15. Now, Philippi is called a leading city, a prominent city in the region. And Luke indicates in verse 12 that we remained in this city some days. So they were probably there for quite a while, teaching and preaching. And and throughout Acts, it's been saying that the church was being multiplied and people were coming to faith regularly. And, And 
at one of those instances, they go to the riverside to a place of prayer, gathering of Jews and God-fearers, and, and they're speaking to the women. So maybe the women and men are meeting separately, or maybe only the women wanted to listen. But we learn of one specific convert, Lydia, a seller of purple goods and a worshiper of God. We see that in verse 14. And we see the pattern of her conversion, that she was a God-fearer that attended the Jewish temple. She heard the disciples' teaching. She opened her heart to pay attention to this teaching And then the inference is that she believed and then she was baptized along with her household. And what we see, which is often the pattern throughout Acts, which is her behavior after her conversion, is the evidence of that she was truly come to faith. Her her faith is authenticated by her generosity and hospitality. So she's insisting upon providing hospitality for the four missionaries, and she likely had the means to do so. Maybe a a large home and servants and resources, and and maybe she's uh, either divorced or a widow or, or just never been married. And so Lydia and her household will later comprise the Philippian church. And what was the Philippian church known for? their partnership in the gospel financially with Paul and his team. Paul said this, he said, no church entered into partnership with us in giving and receiving except you only, Philippians 4.15. He thanks them for their partnership in the gospel. They were generous. They sent multiple gifts to support his ministry. And so it's just striking to see the conversion of the foundation of this Philippian church and that God uses it for gospel advance. And throughout, we also see Paul's partnership with women as contributors to the mission. And the other thing we ought to note is that people of significant financial means shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed of their resources, but are to set an example of generosity and hospitality in gospel advance. And and I think this is just important to draw out sometimes. Some of us, if we're extremely wealthy, we might be sheepish or or embarrassed about that, and we think we need to hide that. And yet, some of us have the spiritual gift of generosity, just like others have the spiritual gift of faith and of prayer and, and of service. And so if you have that spiritual gift, we would say, use it for the advance of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, he says, Tell the rich to be rich in good works, generous, ready to share, storing up treasures in heaven. Now, it may be helpful to be aware that at uh, verse 15 and then also in verse 33, so the baptism of Lydia's household and then the baptism of the jailer in his household, there are some who see this as evidence of infant baptism. So that would be the position of paedo-baptism, that babies should be baptized. Throughout Acts, there's no evidence that this includes infants. Now, the emphasis that is present in Acts is this, whether it's Cornelius' household or here, that those baptized are those who hear the gospel, repent, and then believe. That is the pattern. Baptism is consistently based on personal faith and commitment, and there's no reason to think Otherwise, I don't think Luke assumes infants are included in these household baptisms, but rather all who get baptized are those who hear the gospel, who repent of their sins, believe by faith, and rejoice in receiving this good news. And and 
if you're curious about kind of further, uh, I can direct you to a couple of resources. But now we've seen additional reinforcements. All of this is getting ready for sort of the climactic moment, the, the showdown. So additional reinforcements. We got Timothy, uh, a redirected strategy. Jesus is directing them to Philippi, increased support base. Now we have Lydia's help. And now we come to verse 16 to 40, where the battle ensues. What we see is a conflict and then incarceration, divine intervention, and then a miraculous conversion. And I think it's here that the Lord Jesus Christ is establishing a beachhead for gospel advance. And and this section comes in four scenes. We get a conflict, we get the arrest, and then we get the earthquake, and then we get the release, right? So first we'll look at the conflict in verses 16 to 18. We're introduced to a slave girl who has a spirit of divination. It's very literally a python spirit, a demonic spirit. And she could foretell the future, and she was earning her owners a significant amount of money. And she's yelling out, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, what's unclear is whether this was helping Paul and his team or if it was creating confusion. Because she would have been yelling out, and, and it looks from face value that this is a true statement. These men are indeed servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This almost has echoes of Luke 8 or Mark 5 where Jesus goes to the Gerasenes and there's the man who's uh, afflicted with the legion of demons and he falls down before Jesus and he says, What will you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? And and so we see even now, in the same way that the demons bowed to Jesus, we have the demonic realm on notice. They see that Jesus is at work in and through his disciples in advancing his church. Now, what's unclear is that when she says servants of the Most High, how would the people in the local region have heard that? I think they might have heard that as referring to Zeus, and not understood that it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reference to salvation could be easily confused in the Greco-Roman world, that it was full of saviors and deliverers. And, and so we're told that Paul's patience was wearing thin, and he was greatly annoyed. Many of us find great encouragement in that. Even Paul got annoyed. She kept this up probably for many days. It says that in verse 18. So Paul probably didn't speak out immediately because he calculated the risk. This is kind of Greco-Roman area. Uh, we're not exactly on the inside. There could be some significant hostility and, and, and we're outsiders and she's considered property. And so this could get tricky. But finally, he says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it says the spirit came out. So even the demonic spirits obey the disciples who speak the name of Jesus. And then we're left with all sorts of unanswered questions. What, what happens to the girl? Does she come to saving faith? Does, does she get out of her enslavement? We don't get any of those answers, those questions answered. Instead, Luke continues to advance the story. He shows how these men respond in 19 to 24. Here we get the arrest and the escalating tension. They don't take kindly to it. That they seize 
Paul and Silas, kind of like a citizen's arrest. They drag them through the marketplace. They're accused of disturbing the city. They're advocating for illegal customs. They're beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Paul later says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five that he was beaten with rods three times. Probably one time is here. Now, they're put into the inner cell of the inner portion of the prison, so probably the maximum security area. Their, their feet are placed in stocks so that they couldn't move them. And it's at this point we're introduced to the jailer in verse 23. Now, it's important to understand the role of a jailer in a Roman context. The jailer wasn't someone who had this plushy government job. He was probably a public slave. He was owned by the city, whom the magistrates would assign to various tasks and duties throughout the city. And so there's no cushy pension here in working for the state. Instead, they were slaves or bond servants. And and there would be various types uh, of kind of state-owned slaves to be the treasurers and accountants and building maintenance and technical laborers. And, And so now this leads us to the earthquake that leads to salvation. Paul and Silas in verse 25, it says, are praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. This is a stunning response that in the midst of being beaten, dragged through the town square, falsely accused, thrown into prison, They're not lamenting their situation. They're praising God. And it's so striking. They got closed doors in other places. You can't speak the name of Jesus here. But now, here in jail, you get to speak the name of Jesus all that you would like. And and for many of us, we think, well, I'd rather do it without stocks on my feet and chains on my hands and, and having been beaten. And yet, God is on a mission to save this jailer, to establish a beachhead for the gospel. Here is the first casualty in the battle. Paul and Silas are bleeding and bloodied, but they are not defeated. Their imprisonment is a wide open door for gospel advance. They can preach Christ as much as they want, as loud as they want, and they're singing songs in praise of God. We don't know what that would have been. Maybe they're singing kind of songs of deliverance from the Old Testament, from the Psalms itself, or maybe new hymns that have been written in worship of Jesus as the risen and ascended Lord and Messiah. But now they have this captive audience. It's it's likely that all the other prisoners were brought into that inner room as well during the night, this kind of extra security. So that's why later when Paul says, we're all still here, you can kind of see everybody. And, And And they're this captive audience, as well as the jailer, who's within earshot. At midnight, a great earthquake shakes. The jailer wakes up, sees the prison doors open, draws his sword, and is ready ready to kill himself. Why? I think it's two possible reasons, maybe both. He he believes that he's either going to die at the hand of the escaped prisoners. Once they get through these doors, they're going to kill me on their way of escaping. Or second, once they get out, whether they kill me or not, I'm going to get killed because that would have been the just penalty for letting prisoners escape. You pay with your own life. He would be executed probably by crucifixion by the magistrates. And so at least this way, he goes out on his own terms. 
I think the stunning surprise here in this passage is that the earthquake is not for the release of Paul and Silas. The earthquake is so that the jailer gets saved. God orchestrates all of this, closed doors, moving into Philippi, getting thrown in jail, dragged and beaten, all for the sake, not, and the earthquake. The earthquake's not for Paul and Silas to get out. They don't get out through that way. The earthquake is so that the jailer and his household get saved. Here we have Aslan on the move. The Lord Jesus Christ has a man in his sights and he takes great lengths to go and get him, to rescue him as an emblem of grace. We don't know how the jailer would have ministered in the Philippian church in the days and years and decades to come, but I imagine he was a faithful disciple that would retell this story for generations to come. He would testify to the goodness and of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul replies, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. It's so stunning. Seconds after being ready to take your own life, he now gets salvation. He gets saved. This is the stunning grace of God. I don't know if there's anyone here this morning that has or is contemplating taking your own life. I do know that there are people struggling in this season of life with depression and anxiety and fear and and just overwhelming circumstances that just feel way beyond what you're able to withstand and bear up. And the jailer poses the most foundational question for us this morning. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he alone can wash away your sins. I know that some of us are facing really deep waters right now. Whether it's health, maybe it's employment, maybe it's personal, maybe it's your extended family, maybe it's your children or your parents or whatever it may be. Deep despair, overwhelming trials that you despair of life itself and you think, it it might be better just to take my life than to have to withstand this affliction, to try to get through it. But this morning, I hope you hear it loud and clear from the scriptures. Do not harm yourself. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hardship or trial that is too great for God's power. There is no struggle that is beyond what Jesus can meet you in. There is no hopelessness that Jesus cannot fundamentally transform. And so my call For those who are in that place this morning is come to Jesus. Surrender at the foot of the cross. He can deliver you. He can see you through. See how this Philippian jailer, he thinks, surely I'm a dead man. I should take my own life. And what happens instead is he gets salvation and he enters into the kingdom of God so that he would experience unspeakable joy forever. Have you ever seen a more stunning transition? 
being ready to take your own life. Out of darkness, God pulled them out and put them into his glorious light. Believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. It tells us that the jailer washed their wounds, serves them food. He gets baptized along with his entire household. And, and the way this probably worked is that the jailer lived on the site of the prison. So either an upper level or an adjacent building. And so everyone's awake from the earthquake. Everyone comes out and he brings these two guys out. And he, uh, Paul and Silas, they preach to his household and, and, and they get saved. They get baptized. And again, we see sort of the overflow, the evidence, the proof that he's truly come to faith. Because it would have been illegal for the jailer to, to meet the needs of these prisoners. That would have been not allowed at all. And yet his hospitality and kindness to Paul and Silas is against evidence of true conversion. And then we see the release and resolution in verse 35 to 40. We don't know why they get released. Maybe it was the earthquake. Maybe they heard about what took place overnight. Maybe they figured that the beatings were enough punishment. Maybe we scared them, they think. But Paul refuses his release. He says, you beat us illegally. You though we're Roman citizens, and now you want us to leave quietly. Uh-uh, no way. We're, we're, we're not doing that. See, what they did was they were punished without proper legal prog- process, which would have been illegal for Roman citizens. So Paul makes demands at this point, and he accuses them of illegal beating, imprisonment, refuses to leave quietly, and he wants the magistrates to come and, and escort them out personally. And I think the reason Luke includes this and so that the magistrates are fearful. They're like, oh, we, we did do that. Uh, we didn't know they were Roman citizens. And they come and they do exactly as Paul says. And I think the intended purpose of this is that as they're released, it shows that these men aren't guilty of the crimes that they were accused of because the magistrates themselves are escorting them out. But what this does, it gives the Philippian church not only an example of how to suffer if and when they're thrown in prison, but it establishes their reputation. And, and allows for gospel advance into that region. Because now the mnemonic spirits are on notice. The local magistrates are on notice. The crowds are on notice. And now the church is going to continue to grow and expand. So eventually they leave. And it says they visit Lydia and they visit the brothers or the fellow believers. And so I think what we see here is... The beachhead is now established in Philippi. The church rejoices with great joy. Aslan is on the move. And not only is the church a beachhead in those days, but the church continues to be a beachhead for gospel advance. We have the same spirit, the same Lord, the same gospel, and we are part of the same singular, universal church that continues to preach Christ. So very often in our day and age, we can think, oh, the church is so battered and beaten. We, we, we get such bad PR sometimes and, and we're on the defensive because the culture just continues kind of wave after wave. And, and I have a newsflash for us. We're not. 
Yes, things may get hard at times, but we have been commissioned by the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. He's not asleep. He's seated on his throne and he's advancing his church, building his kingdom, causing the gospel to go forth. And when we speak those words to lost people, when people say, what must I do to be saved? You can say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you better believe it. The gospel is the power of salvation, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. Don't be shy about speaking the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters. We have the very words of life this morning. Now, how do we apply this passage? I want to draw out three additional things. First, marvel at gospel advance. Marvel at how the advance of the gospel has just continued to go. I, I, I know we're celebrating 150 years as an anniversary, and, and for many of us, it's kind of like, eh, because none of us are 150 years old. And so don't we remember all that took place in the beginning or even 30 years ago? Very few of us were here 30 years ago. Uh, some of us weren't alive. Um, but marvel at this. Don't marvel just at 150 years. God's been faithful, but marvel that the church has existed from the very beginning, since Pentecost, its original birthday. And it has been saving souls ever since, advancing into the furthest reaches, transforming entire peoples and cultures, where certain cultures would have worshipped a hundred different gods. They, They cast down all those idols and they say, Lord Jesus alone. Where others would have worshipped trees and rocks and sticks, they they. they put those aside, and they said, Jesus Christ alone. That is the stunning reality of the advance of the gospel. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus has been working for thousands of years, and we'll see his mission all the way through. Second, pray for open doors. Let's pray for open doors. Don't be discouraged by closed doors. Jesus is powerfully at work. Paul and Silas could have just sat there and lamented. Why can't we speak the name of Jesus here? And instead they say, oh, he's calling us over there. And then they could have lamented. Now we're in jail. This fruitful ministry has been stopped. No, no. This is where your fruitful ministry begins to shine forth even more. So whatever trials and hardships come, pray that God would open doors among our neighbors and co-workers and classmates for the gospel. And then pray for our global partners as they minister. Pray that God would open doors for them to minister across cultural and social barriers so that many more would leave idols and lies and come to saving faith in Jesus. And then lastly, be ready to persevere. The most striking thing to me in this account is that we don't hear a word of complaint from Paul and Silas. They they, they don't say, we're being beaten, treated shamefully, dragged through the town square, imprisoned illegally. 
their suffering leads to the salvation of the jailer and his entire household, contributes to the establishment and strengthening of this beachhead for the gospel, the Philippian church. And now the Philippians have this beautiful example of how to live when it's their turn to be thrown in jail. And we have a beautiful example of how to live when someday we might get thrown in jail. And so, I don't know what the future will bring for Christians in this day and age. We, we, we might have some guesses. Will pastors be thrown in jail someday for calling homosexuality or anything along the LGBTQ plus spectrum a sin? Will you lose your job when you refuse to call someone by their preferred gender pronouns? Or will your small business get shut down because you won't celebrate immorality or various lies that our culture values? I don't know. But what I do know is this. That the gospel will continue to advance. That Christ's kingdom will continue to multiply and increase. And even the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the preaching of the gospel and the advance of God's people. So some of us may get the opportunity to start involuntary prison ministries. Do not fret, brothers and sisters. Do not be afraid. It may not be pleasant, but be assured that abounding grace will come for every moment of every day as long as we continue to cleave to the Lord Jesus Christ, the preached gospel, and never depart from the one who has saved us. So make your life count. Be about his word and be about gospel advance to the very ends of the earth and be bold in opening our mouths so that Jesus is proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are powerfully and gloriously at work in and through your church so that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. Cause it to take hold in many hearts for our good, for the advance of the gospel, and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.